0: Possibly the two most important things to have understood in markets over the last few years have been how Chinese deleveraging would impact the global economy and the economic impact of Covid lockdowns and the eventual reopenings that followed. Right now, a huge change is occurring in China as the government made an abrupt decision last month to halt the nation's severe zero COVID policy. We're now seeing the world's second largest economy reawaken while simultaneously being hit by a massive wave of COVID infections. We're also seeing a push from Chinese policymakers to stimulate the economy, which is still suffering from a bursting real estate bubble. China additionally announced just this morning plans to relax restrictions on developer borrowing, dialing back the three red lines policy that burst the nation's real estate bubble. China's zero Covid policy looked like it worked back in 2020, when millions of lives were lost in other countries while China appeared to keep the debt toll significantly lower. But as other countries vaccinated and reopened, the Chinese Zero Covid policy became a huge burden on Chinese people and the Chinese economy. Possibly due to the slowing economy or the ballooning cost of running the program, the Chinese government began easing the Covid testing requirements in late November. Without the constant testing, the policy stopped working. Omicron began spreading first in Beijing and then in the rest of the country. The authorities moved to lock people down once more, but this time residents fiercely resisted they had had enough after almost three years. Street protests erupted in China for the first time in decades. While the demonstrations did not last very long. The government possibly realized that they couldn't win against millions of angry citizens who were willing to disobey lockdowns. In December, the government gave in, sick people could now isolate themselves at home and health codes were no longer required to enter most places. The Zero Covid policy was replaced by the Let It Rip policy. A wave of coronavirus hit the country and people began staying at home once again, this time either by their own choice or because they were sick. Beijing returned to looking like a ghost town in December. In Chinese state media, President Xi has declared victory over the pandemic. The virus is little worse than the flu, according to government experts, which of course raises the question, why the extreme lockdowns? The Chinese government has changed the definition of what qualifies as a COVID death, ensuring that the official number of fatalities will remain well below those that have been observed in the West. It's difficult to know what the illness and death rates in China actually are, as the government keeps this data classified, but tens of millions of people do appear to be catching the virus every day in China and hospitals and funeral homes have been overwhelmed. According to the scientific journal Nature, China's overall vaccination rate is above 85 percent. That high rate was achieved with a vaccination passport system, where the unvaccinated were prohibited from entry to many public buildings and workplaces. According to the epidemiologist Ben Cowling, the domestic Chinese vaccinations offer sufficient protection against severe disease for adults under the age of 60. Unfortunately, older and more vulnerable people were less likely to go places that required a vaccination passport, and thus the elderly mostly remained unvaccinated. Additionally, there are more multi-generational households in China than in the West. Around 40 percent of over 60-year-olds live with their married children in China, compared to around 10 percent in Europe and 20 percent in the United States. I have no expertise on the effectiveness of the various vaccines, I am presenting the best information that I could find online, but a doctor I spoke to said that he can only speculate about the effectiveness of the Chinese vaccinations, but an unvaccinated elderly population, particularly in intergenerational households, is pretty much COVID's ideal hunting ground. So that is the situation being faced in China right now. While the end of China's zero Covid policy has reduced worries about lockdown related supply chain problems, the nation is struggling with a high number of infections which adds different pressures to the Chinese economy and the global supply chain. One way or another, China's management of its reawakening will have a huge impact not just on China but on the rest of the world. The sudden reversal of policy in China has been chaotic to start with, as factories have been struggling to deal with high absenteeism due to sick workers. Illness is not the only problem that China is faced with though. The nation is confronted with a slowing global economy, dragged down by high inflation, an energy crisis and geopolitical turmoil. Faced with higher interest rates, Western shoppers have been tightening their belts and spending less which doesn't help the export-driven Chinese economy. Chinese exports fell in November compared to a year earlier, led by a 25 percent decline in exports to the United States. Westerners who had spent heavily on things like exercise equipment and other manufactured goods from China during the pandemic are now feeling more budget conscious. The Chinese consumer is not spending much either, and convincing people to spend after three years of on and off lockdowns won't be easy. Many Chinese workers are looking for ways to rebuild their savings rather than ways to spend them. Car dealerships in China are struggling to deal with unsold inventory. Stores have little need to order in more goods when they are already full of unsold merchandise, so China is faced with slumping demand both at home and abroad. China's factory activity contracted even more in December due to sick workers and dampened overall demand. Service industries in China, like restaurants, found business in December to be almost as bad as in early 2020 at the start of the pandemic. Many even closed last month as their customers stayed home to avoid infection or because they were already sick. China's official PMI data released last weekend showed a steep decline in economic activity. Its manufacturing and services gauges came in at 47 and 41.6 respectively, both falling to the lowest level since early 2020. A reading below 50 indicates a contraction. The key message from that data is that the reopening is not yet going smoothly. The lifting of quarantine rules has helped drive sales of airline tickets ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday on January 22nd this year. The removal of Covid restrictions also means that goods are moving through the country much faster. The time taken to move goods around the country is more than halved as truck drivers are no longer constantly being stopped for PCR tests and health code checks. Analysts are expecting infection to peak around the Chinese New Year festivities later this month, as that's when friends and families get together to celebrate. The economy is expected to begin recovering after March. Analysts at Citi forecast retail sales in China will grow 11 percent in 2023. HSBC projects a contraction in the first quarter of the year, but 5% growth overall for 2023. While inflation numbers have been improving in the rest of the world, some of that improvement has been due to reduced demand from China during all of these lockdowns. Should the Chinese economy really heat up, the additional demand would be inflationary worldwide. This would be somewhat offset by a greater supply of manufactured goods coming out of the country though. Before the pandemic, China was the world's largest source of outbound tourists, with 150 million travelers going abroad each year. The total value of Chinese worldwide travel was just over a quarter of a trillion dollars in 2019. McKinsey is projecting that international travel out of China will jump from 5% of the 2019 level that we saw last month to around 50% by this summer. This could provide a boost to tourism businesses around the world. Foreign executives who have been unable to visit their businesses in China for the last three years are also likely to be booking trips into China again soon. China's economy is expected to miss the 5.5% annual growth target that was set by the government for 2022, and that is already the lowest target that has been set in decades. Economists polled by Bloomberg are forecasting full-year growth of just 3% for 2022. In addition to the wave of COVID infections, policymakers in China are struggling with an ongoing property crisis that's weighed on the economy for more than a year. We'll get to that in just a moment. A broad measure of China's budget deficit hit a record high in the first 11 months of 2022. This was driven by a few factors. A slump in land leases to developers, which are a big source of government income, fell by almost a quarter from the prior year. This is mostly driven by the struggling and debt-laden property developers no longer growing their land banks. Tax cuts, a critical part of Beijing's efforts to stimulate the economy, also cut into fiscal income. Official data shows China's value-added tax collection, one of the biggest sources of budgetary income, fell more than 25 percent in the first 11 months of 2022 after Beijing cut VAT rates and offered rebates in a bid to revive growth. Revenue from taxes on car purchases fell by almost a third during the same period as Beijing cut tax rates to boost big-ticket consumer items. These revenues are also being hit by a severe reduction in demand for new cars in China. The government's fiscal spending, led by healthcare and social welfare costs, continued to grow as Beijing struggled to control the pandemic and provide a safety net for a fast-growing population of jobless adults. Chinese Ministry of Finance data shows That government healthcare spending surged 15 percent in the first 11 months of 2022, as policymakers invested heavily in Covid testing and quarantine facilities, as part of their effort to stamp out the pandemic. This healthcare spending likely grew even more in December as Covid infections overwhelmed hospitals in China. As government financial woes deepen, the authorities are coming under pressure to cut back on spending. The government has held the deficit target unchanged, meaning that the authorities have to reduce spending in order to offset any drop in revenue. Public finances could improve next year if the government decides to reduce control over the private sector, which has been beaten down in recent years by growing regulations over issues like data security, and this has particularly been the case on the tech sector in China. Now, we have talked quite a bit on this channel about the issues of supply chain disruptions, which were partially driven by the zero-COVID policies and also driven by trade disputes with Western countries. Many companies that struggle to import critical components from China over the last few years have begun diversifying their production and purchasing away from China. Apple recently announced plans to move some MacBook production to Vietnam for the first time in 2023. They have been working to add production sites outside of China for all of their big product lines for the last two years, to make sure that they don't lose out if there are any future trade disruptions. After the MacBook production shifts, all of Apple's flagship products will have a backup production location beyond China, iPhones in India and MacBooks, the Apple Watch and iPads in Vietnam. Today labor in Vietnam is cheaper than in China, but they don't yet have the same quality of infrastructure. For China, the loss of its lock on MacBook production symbolizes the overall weakening of its position as the world's factory. Apple, Hewlett Packard, Dell, Google and Meta have all made at least some plans to shift production and sourcing away from China. It is not just tech companies either. Ted Canis, a senior executive at Ford, told the press that the supply chain is going to be the focus of this decade. Over the last 20 years, China has become a major manufacturer of automobile components. Many manufacturers are now reducing their reliance on Chinese manufacturing. These companies by no means plan to abandon Chinese manufacturing entirely, at this stage that would be almost impossible as for one thing it has become a big market for many of them, but they are saying that they expect the flow of components from China to plants around the world to fall over time. Many automobile manufacturers are saying that they aim to make parts and cars inside China exclusively for use within the country, reducing their reliance on Chinese factories for goods sold overseas while still retaining a secure local supply chain for their own plants inside the country. Mazda, Honda, Ford and General Motors have all been shifting production of some components made in China to their home markets. They say that they are doing this to increase the resilience of their supply chains and that it has nothing to do with decoupling from China. Nonetheless, this is not great news for China. A trend towards near-shoring or friendshoring could be good for countries like Mexico and India who might see manufacturing grow within their economies. The economist Michael Pettis argues that there is a good economic reason for Washington to encourage switching production from countries with large persistent trade surpluses like China to countries like Mexico with balanced trade or even trade deficits. Doing so, he argues, would increase global demand and increase direct and indirect U.S. exports in line with any increase in U.S. imports. Because wages and household income make up a larger share of Mexican output, Mexican export revenues are converted into imports. In a trade surplus country like China, workers earn a lower share of their production and the export revenues are converted into savings, which are then exported and there's a net reduction in global demand. Last year, American investors put more money into Mexico buying companies and financing projects than into China, according to an analysis by McKinsey Global Institute. It is not just Western companies either. Some Chinese exporters are now diversifying abroad looking at manufacturing in locations like Vietnam, Cambodia, Mexico and Turkey, where they can manufacture cheaply and not be as reliant on a factory in a single location. China's strengths in manufacturing and its workforce are still hard to beat even in the midst of a raging epidemic. But there is more competition from abroad than ever before, and big companies learned a lesson when they were surprised by the breakdown in trade with Russia less than a year ago. They don't want to find themselves in a vulnerable position again should trade disputes heat up. There will be a real focus on how Chinese policymakers attempt to fix the country's ailing real estate sector in 2023, and that is still an ongoing problem. As I mentioned earlier, Bloomberg is reporting this morning that Chinese policymakers are rolling back the three red lines policy that burst the Chinese property bubble back in 2021. Details are still sparse, but policymakers might permit some property firms to add more leverage by easing borrowing caps and pushing back the grace period for meeting debt targets set by the policy. The crisis in the real estate sector, which started when several high-profile developers defaulted on their debt in 2021, has delayed or halted construction of pre-sold homes across the country. These construction halts triggered protests by home buyers, some of whom refused to pay mortgages on unfinished homes. While Beijing has unveiled a 16-point plan to ease the credit crunch, the numbers still paint a gloomy picture. At a key policy meeting last month, leaders vowed to focus on boosting the economy in 2023, suggesting they would roll out new measures that improve the financial condition of the property sector and boost market confidence. The measures announced so far are not sufficient to drive a turnaround, but policymakers have signaled that more support is on its way. China's Minister of Finance recently told the press, given the need for more spending to support the economy, fears have been mounting over the rising local government debt risks and the potential impact on the state-dominated banking sector. This statement essentially acknowledges that policymakers are aware that more state-directed infrastructure spending to boost economic activity is likely to be malinvestment. Productive investment boosts an economy by more than it increases debt. So, this problem only occurs when there is malinvestment. As long as Chinese policymakers demand more growth from the economy than can be sustainably delivered, Beijing won't be able to prevent the debt burden from rising. In the short term, the economy is likely to grow as business activity resuming equates to growth. In the long run, if policymakers don't want debt to grow unsustainably, they will have to accept more reasonable growth rates below 2-3%. to Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you are enjoying it, please share it with your friends, as that is really how podcasts grow. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye.